Hello and welcome to the first ever Mad Tech podcast by Exchange Wire. Um, I am Lindsay Roundtree, Head of Content at Exchange Wire, and I'm joined today by our CEO, Kieran O'Kane, and the wonderful Wayne Bloodwell, CEO and, co- uh, CEO and founder of the Programmatic Advisory. Welcome, everyone. Hello. Hello. Right, very excited Glad to be here. You're, you're glad to be here. I mean, we're all glad to be here. <laughs> okay. This I'm is glad very exciting. Here. Very exciting Wayne's for us. our first, ho- uh, first guest yeah. ever on the Mad Tech podcast. It's great. It's exciting for me. I'm really pleased. <laughs> Tell I mean, we wait till the end of the podcast. We'll see how this goes first. <laughs> Tell them the format, Lindsay, because we have to explain it to I our I will listeners. explain the format. So we will kick off the Mad Tech podcast with uh, kind of a roundup of the big stories in the news this week. Um, and then we will go into more of a kind of a, a general chit chat with Wayne to, to find out what's going on with him and kind of what are the key things that he's seeing, seeing in the moment in the work that he does. So, on that note, let's kick off with what's been happening in the news. I want to start with the uh, the news that uh, at AT and T have launched Xander, Xander, whatever you want to call it, Xander, It is the amalgamation of their recent AppNexus acquisition um, and their ad businesses at um, ad, AdWorks and att.net, which is their analytics. Arm, I believe. So piling everything into one. Um, into and one yeah, bucket. and rather unsurprisingly, it's being headed up by Brian Lesser, uh, Brian um, who will become C- who he will be CEO of Zander. And I want to get everyone's thoughts on kind of you know what this is. This is big. This is a very very big thing. And it's you know the app next acquisition was unex was expected by Kieran. Let's let's. It was well. It was a finger in the air because I made a, at least twenty other predictions, and none of them fucking came true. <laughs> so, oh, I, by the way, we're going to swear in this podcast. So. <laughs> Apologise to any Christians and Americans out there. So, um, yeah, uh, it was just one of those predictions. It came true. It just made a lot of sense given that Brian Lesser had been uh, such an advocate of AppNexus at Zaxxis and Group M. So it's just logical that when they went to AT&T that they would probably buy an ad tech company to kind of be that spine once they bought um, Time Warner. So was Time Warner the boss? Yeah, the, the, yeah. So they needed a spine. Um, in terms of the, the, the new branding, yeah, interesting name. F- I mean, we've heard plenty of American coverage about it, but not from a European perspective because of AppNexus here. And AppNexus is a very important player here. So I think it's kind of like, it's, it's a, it, it'll be a shrewd business in, in, uh, in the US. It'll be interesting to see how they position it here. I believe that, that AppNexus are going to keep their, their, their own name here in Europe. And globally, that's what I heard. I don't know if that's true or not, but Xander for me feels it's going to be a, a fairly sizable IO-based business. Yeah, I think what the you know the almost naysayers who think that this may not succeed is because you've had companies like Oath, who you know, no offense to anyone who works at Oath, but they probably haven't taken the world as they probably expected, um, and their you know their proposition was basically piecing together a bunch of assets from. You know, different places, which they've now finally done. Yeah, as in they've now launched Oath ad platforms, and it is now all the disparate parts that came together under Oath are now finally one business. So I would be interested to see how that what happens with that kind of over the next six to twelve months because they're now in a place that's got a lot of work gone into it that they are actually it's one entity and not loads of different brand names that everyone knows and doesn't really understand what it is they do. Yeah, at least they're now going to start talking to each other. I'll be interested to see how AT and T do the same thing with all the component parts that they've just merged together as well but they yeah. but they only have i mean the good thing about buying app nexus is it is a buy side and sell side it's a unified stack you know you got your dsp your exchange your ssp your ad server 
So they, they, they ticked all the boxes. It was inevitable that they would do that. But I, I from, from like, let's be honest here, right? This is a podcast that is, is, not, is not about America. It's about the global state of things. And Xander will not be an, an element in Europe because they have no data in Europe. They've got plenty of data in LATAM, by the way, just, just, to, just to sort of point that out. Like, they've got a massive telco business in, in LATAM. So they will have a sizable business there as well. But I don't think it will be a huge factor here. Do I mean, do you think that companies like AT&T is, is obviously a very, very American and the America's business. Do you think they care about Europe? We're seeing a trend of big American companies that don't really care about Europe. It's becoming, you know, almost too complicated to operate here. Walmart are pretty much pulling out of Europe and they've been buying up direct-to-consumer businesses that now no longer are able to ship to anywhere in Europe because it's just too complicated and they don't need they don't need the business. They don't need to do it. Do you think that AT&T might go along the same approach and sort of go, well, we don't, that, like, Europe's got nothing for us. We can, we can do bigger and better things in our home market. Are you saying mm. you think they'll not be as interested as AppNexus was I'm asking, in, in a I'm asking the way. question I'm asking the question um, I, I would I say like, like any company they've got to show growth to shareholders investors the markets etc and true. you know if you reach a point of saturation in your market you look elsewhere typically so I don't know I think it'd be a bit slower to get a, come across into Europe and there's different competitors and as you say regulation is something which will probably be a barrier um, but I would be surprised if they didn't get some sort of presence here and then you hear Brian talking on stage about the ambitions it's to take on Google and Facebook and Google and Facebook are globally scaled so absolutely yeah but AT&T don't have any data in Europe I mean this is a data play let's be honest here right um I don't know I'm I'm, I've always been a big up nexus bull I always thought they were a really important company and I always wanted them well because they're they're an alternative to the big G who who let's be honest (coughs) here run the show in Europe in many respects. Their marketer of DFP or um, Google Ad Manager, whatever we're calling it now, is, is insane in, in this part of the world. <laughs> and the fact that AppNex has managed to kind of grow a sizable ad server business against that here is, is, is remarkable. But you've got to ask yourself, AT&T are trying to protect their business <coughs> from, you know, encroaching companies like Amazon and Facebook and Google and OT, the OTT piece and now you see you know Amazon coming out with their own TV station ad funded TV station their first uh, sort of protocol is going to be protect their existing ad business right and you, you have to think that the app Nexus resource and it's significant they have many engineers in Europe or in, in New York will be used to build that piece of tech for ATT first and foremost for the US market what happens after that is, is anybody's guess but you've got to think that, you know, even though Shipstead and Axel Springer and, and a lot of the, the sort of, um, you know, uh, supply and, and demand on, on their, on their um, programmatic platform uh, isn't as much of a priority to them. Mm-hmm. And, and that would be my big, I'd be very, it'd be, it would be, it'd be upsetting and kind of like, it would really sort of like disrupt the market here if they didn't. They weren't as committed as they were before, you know what I mean? Yeah, whenever I talk to the Abnexians, as they call themselves... <laughs> um, oh, yes. <laughs> they, um, they're very proud of their kind of presence in Europe. Talk about their sort of supply coverage in, you know, Nordics, which has been dominated by Adform for years, into other areas of Europe. So I don't know, I'd be... I feel like if they're just down tools, it'd be years of hard work and deep relationships with companies who don't like Google 
Yeah, but then but then there's an opportunity then for like more independent players. So can you think about Smart who have a unified ad server and SSP? You think about Open Web who have a full stack. Uh, you think of people like uh, Barry Beeswax. They have a, a you know an interesting sort of um, bidder play. Um, so they're, they're, I, I wouldn't say it's a total disaster, but I wouldn't want to see them sort of like just ignore Europe. It is interesting though, like if they do, I, I just kind of think about this today. If Xander is Xander's play in the US is going to be very IO driven, right? I don't care what anybody says. They're going to have all the data, AT and They'll be doing a lot of managed service, and I think they, they may go and look for a company that could execute. And I think that company could be Media IQ. I think like the, I think the MIQ now, whatever. Oh, no, the another prediction. I I think that Xander may end up buying. How many steins is this one? Three out of five uh, I, think steins, this is, I think this is a proper. I think this is a proper four and a half steins. I think wow. Four and a half steins. That I, is high. I, I think after, I I, I I know there's no conversations happening, but I, I have a f- funny feeling they might go shopping for an execution layer, like you know, like because as someone pointed out on a, on a to me today that the the um, Xander proposition is very strong on, on the sell side in terms of like the publisher and optimization piece, but on the on the buy side they don't really have that capability like you know i'm just that's my prediction i i think i think xander will buy more companies but as for europe who knows unless they buy o2 like at&t or vodafone that could be quite interesting then yeah yeah okay um, i have to clarify if you don't know what we're talking about when we're talking about kieran's famous stein predictions every year before de mexico he predicts what he thinks might happen at de mexico um and kind of in the in the, the short-term future afterwards and he always uses steins as to how many steins full steins he believe it will happen and he did predict that at and would buy up nexus but he only gave it three steins that's very true but mm. I, I had drank at least six steins when i wrote that right that that yeah. so i was kind of seeing stuff it makes a lot more sense anyway i want to move on to the next new story so facebook has been getting a bit of a bashing recently i mean even even the uh, even scott galloway has said he may even actually sell his stock in the company because he's pretty much done with them um but you can't be argued they still have a massive share of the ad business you know they they're they're trying to innovate they're they're doing launching new products like facebook watch what what's what's going on with them do you think there's still there's still room to grow they're scalable kieran any, any kind of so I, things I'm, you've been hearing on the grapevine. I'm not a fan of Facebook. I don't really? like the company. Uh, I think they're 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 a danger to humanity. All the rest of it, right? I, I'm with Scott Galloway on this. I, I just think they've created like tools that have basically divided instead of connecting people as a, as if as that's contrary to what they think they're doing. But I am a Facebook bull in the sense that I think they got so much room to grow in terms of revenue. I think they've got so much in data. And people are, it's sticky, right? People are not going to move away from Instagram tomorrow or Facebook. They may decline in, in terms of like user growth, but that's going to that's gonna plateau. But if you can plateau with 2 billion users in the world, I think you're in a pretty good place. And then I heard yesterday as well, I, I don't know whether this is public knowledge, but apparently fan, they, they, I think it's true because this person wouldn't have told me, but apparently they did $3 billion, paid out $3 billion to um, publishers, third-party publishers through the uh, the uh, Facebook ad network, which is growing like a, at a clip. Uh, that means it's like, let's say they took a 30 or 40% margin that, that means it's, it's probably worth $5 billion to their top line. What did they do last year? $48 billion. So, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a significant, well, a growing part of their business and it's growing and growing and growing. If you look at the set, the size of AdSense uh, business to Google, which is worth about twenty billion in top line revenues to them, you know that's nearly a, a fifth of their business. So we can imagine that that that, that fan business could, could grow to 
10, 15 billion dollars. Like it's, I just think that they are an absolute juggernaut. And even with all the headwinds they have, and they've got a lot of headwinds, they're going to be, they're apparently being sued by the uh, um, the Irish DPA. Is it DPA? Yeah. Um, for 1.6 billion for, for that ha- <laughs> that recent hack. Uh, and I'm sure there'll be a couple of lawsuits in terms of the uh, um, GDPR, but I just don't see anything really shaking them. Like, I do think their management, like the top tier, is they need a couple of adults in charge. I do feel like they, they need some sensible people in, in charge of them. Mark Zuckerberg should be CTO, not CEO, and I think they need some some adult supervision. But as a company, it's an absolute monster. It's going to be as big as Google in terms of like growth. I mean, Google's going to start topping off in terms of search. And they're all going after TV aggressively. I mean, the TV guys should be really worried. Like, they're really going to go after them aggressively. And another prediction I reckon, I reckon Facebook will buy Roku, Roku as well. I think Roku would fit nicely into Facebook's little sort of um, ambitions around TV and OTT. Can we say some predictions for next week? Yeah, well, well, I think get that, all that, out now. Yeah, well, this, this is... Episode one. Yeah. Yeah. This is two, this is, nothing more to go, this, go for. This is much more realistic than the Xander versus... Uh, I, I think I think Roku is, is probably in the crosshairs. But I don't know. Win, win, yeah. win, win's in the better position because obviously his clients are exactly. buying a lot. Like yeah, that. and I'd say with fan, you know, if Facebook is about 92%, 94% their revenue is um, advertising driven. And that advertising money is coming from mobile because that's where users are moving towards. Facebook monetizes mobile inventory, especially well for third-party app providers mm. and publishers. And there aren't many who can monetize at that scale. AdSense is, you know, it's a mix of mobile and desktop. But, it's mostly desktop. Mm. But you think, so if you're a mobile provider and you want to monetize your property, then where'd you go? You get to Facebook. Mm. There aren't really many alternatives apart from some fairly dodgy mobile ad networks. And they have lots of them. Um, who are doing well incidentally doing exceptionally well yes yeah. despite the headwinds of transparency but they yeah so I just you know Facebook's just going to be a force that keeps on growing from an advertising perspective I do think you know the, the WFA wrote their media charter a couple of months ago and that got released and it basically set out a few not rules would be the wrong thing but a few suggestions to companies like Facebook and Amazon and Google on how their members which are massive advertisers want them to operate and that's becoming you know, be less walled off particularly for measurement and verification um, and whether Facebook decide to play ball with those massive advertisers that are represented by WFA time will tell but, but, do, what, they, but do they care do you think they would I, I don't think they, think care. they really care because uh, their, their, their base of advertisers is, is, is mid to long tail I mean, I, I've got like the mom and pop thing I've got a great example my sister who's, who runs a small store in my hometown um, she's quit all her news, newspaper sort of advertising, gone all in on Instagram and Facebook advertising, and uh, it's 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 work for her. Like, you know? yeah, I mean, we we use it for the programmatic advisory, mm. but I think if you're Facebook, you're publicly listed, you have investors. If you start sit, get press releases saying Procter and Gamble have pulled out of Facebook, that may impact share price. Whereas if, no offence to your sister's business, but if she pulled out of Facebook, I'm not sure it would do too much to the market. It would. Investors in Monaghan would be very angry. <laughs> so I, I always think you know, that you're right. Same with Google. All their money comes from the mid to long tail. And all Which the, is fabulous. It's, yeah. oh, it's an epic business model. Yeah. But at the same time, they have to service the large scale hmm. um, advertisers because, I mean, one, they do spend a lot of money. But two, there's the PR and press and all the stuff that goes around that as well. Yeah, but at the same time, do you think that those those big brand advertisers, you know, they may threaten to pull out of Facebook? I feel like they do so on a weekly basis. Would they actually then go and do it though? Because the amount of money they are piling into that platform, 
I, I just can't, I can't see them finally going, we're going to flip the switch and we're not going to do it anymore. Yeah, I mean, it's tough because, you know, if you think these brands need to show sales against their bottom line, you get to get sales, you need to show ads in front of eyeballs. Where are the eyeballs? Exactly. So it's difficult to say vote with your dollars because you'll see maybe short to midterm impact on your business. Um, but something does need to happen because mm. there's too much um, power and gravity heading towards you know, a few players, which, you know, is arguably dangerous for you know, multiple multitude of reasons. But I think, you know, we're starting to see the the powers that be start to step in with these big companies and not allow them to actually dominate what happens in particularly in the US market. So actually it might not even be down to what the advertisers say. It might actually be down to kind of, you know, the what what the the feds are basically saying and, and yeah. them trying to stop these practices. So that could be the what actually makes a change for once. A hundred percent. And um, you know, if Google got thrown I mean Google have got multiple antitrust lawsuits aimed at them at the moment. Mm. They They've were got, like currently got three in Europe. Yeah and they They've were, got one of the AdSense and Android, and I think they've got a third one as well. I think that shopping one's still kind of floating around. Somewhere. Yeah, and they got served that couple billion euro fine either last year, and that barely impacted them. Their margins came down for one quarter, um, and nothing really happened. So you'll keep throwing fines at them, but you know, ultimately, will the regulators get involved? I think opinions split on that, and opinions also split whether you'd want it to or not. Um, but I think you know, increasingly, as these companies are becoming more and more powerful, generally and that's funded through advertising, I think people will have to start looking a little bit deeper than the cost per click you get out of Facebook. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so speaking of regulators, uh, the final big story that's been going on in the news at the moment is uh, how federal prosecutors in the States have been uh, honing in on uh, the agencies. Havas has been named in particular. So the FBI are looking into their practices um, and one of the big things they're looking at, again, is tra- non-transparent ad buying practices. And, and while Havas has been named, you know, the, the talks are that this might well impact other big whole codes and, and maybe even smaller agencies as well. Wayne, you work very closely with brands and obviously very close with agencies and you are ex-media agency yourself. Where do you th- why do you think this is coming around again? Like, haven't we been through this? Aren't, we, aren't things improving now? No. <laughs> no. Honest, no, but the practices still exist. Yeah. If you speak to any publisher, any kind of tech company who works with holding companies, they need a deal of sorts to get in the door. And that is that is a fact, absolute fact. And I know agencies would say, you know, the deal is secondary to what's best for the client. And in lots of cases, it definitely is. But there's still deals that exist. And those deals are now changing from cash in the bank to training services to, I don't know, trips out to various offices around the world. But there's usually some sort of incentive for those companies to get, you know, the, the dollars from the agencies. Um, so, you know, it's probably about time it came. I mean, you know, the the story, the plot is always thickening, always going on, and it's only getting more and more serious. And you know, and sadly, I just think the agency community in particular just haven't evolved how they make money quickly enough, have hold on to some legacy practices, and probably had this coming. Um, but in the same time, it'd be interesting to see how it shakes out because there are some agencies who, you know, who, who don't, who aren't as extreme in kind of these practices. In the US, they're a bit, <clears throat> they're a bit cleaner in the US, I guess, because it's an illegal practice. But you know, rebates, kickbacks, and for for our listeners in the US, this is a standard in Europe and Asia and Latam. You do not get past the uh, the gatekeepers without having some kind of trading deal, like. I mean, those powerful people in the UK, in the UK market are the trading directors at the big holding groups. 
you can get test budget as a, an ad network in some of these places, but once you hit a threshold in terms of the spend that you're getting from a, a planner buyer or, or a specific account manager, you get a call from, from that team asking to come to see you. And then you've got to negotiate a trading deal. So, like, it's amazing how a global trading deal could actually give a ad tech company real significant value because they're they're potentially going to be on many plans. And, like, you know, we sit around this table. It's 10 years now. Well, 10 years next year that ATS has been going on. The programmatic business has probably been going a bit longer than that, you know, since the days of, you know, Ben Barakas and... and, and Joe Zawadzki got together and did the first trade like across um, the SSP and DSP. I was done previously that in right media, but I'm talking about scale. You know, IOs are still the the lifeblood um, of this industry. It's still how most media transactions take place. And behind an IO, there's always a kickback. There's always a rebate. I hate to use a kickback because it's not a kickback. It's a rebate. It's like some. It's a deal, right? Uh, it's not illegal in this country, and it certainly isn't illegal across Europe. But in the US, it is. And I guess this is what they're what they're trying to um, trying to prove. But yeah. I, I don't think this will come to anything. I think there'll be a few slaps in the wrists, and you know there'll be a few mea culpas, but it won't be any admission of guilt. Well, mea culpa is admission of guilt, but no, there will be no admission of guilt <laughs> as such. I think it'll be a whitewash, and it, the practice will continue. Like it will continue. It's just how how we can be refined, and I think I agree with Wayne. It's you can argue it's kind of like a race to the bottom because agencies have been pushed into this yeah. by marketers. And I guess agencies are in their, their, their own worst enemies in some respects as well because they kind of like went all out to get accounts and drop their pants effectively for to get those accounts and then try to make the money up on the way up by doing deals with, 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 with vendors. And you could argue, is that in the interest of clients? Are these the best vendors in the market? I don't know. We've seen a couple of companies who who have done big businesses, and you just don't see an awful lot of technology, or even you know proprietary data or anything there. It's just basically um, a managed service layer, effectively. Yeah, and I do. You know, I know with my ex agency hat on, um, you know, the agency community listening to this will be frustrated because they do great work day in day out, and you know the trading teams will think this is being driven by clients wanting cheaper rates and i have to say there's a bit of that as well man definitely definitely but you they've had agencies have had two three four years to adopt practices and try and push back on this and i don't i don't think they've really pushed it hard enough personally um but they also they're big businesses that have to make money so there's there's you know it's half dozen one What's the saying? Half dozen one, six of another. Six of another. Yeah. You know what that saying a board is? in the hand is the same as two. <laughs> no, we're not, push. Doing, we're not doing this. No. Okay, we'll we'll kill stop. one we'll board on. with two we'll stones. We'll stop there. <laughs> three. Um, but you know, so the practices still exist. They shouldn't exist. Be interesting to see what comes of this, if anything. But my hope is that advertisers start paying more fairly for services mm. and agencies start being more transparent. Mm. And I'm an idealist, but that's where we want to sort of net out. That is beautiful, win. Thank you, cheers. So, I mean, from your perspective <laughs> and the conversations you're having, I mean, we are we are running out of time in this segment. I need to move on to the next one, but this probably segues quite well into it. Um, you are working directly with brands. Do you think that, do you think now this has kicked off again? They're going to start coming to you and saying, Oh, should we be working with agencies? Should we be looking at the in-housing piece again? Do you think it will kickstart another round of kind of in-housing conversations? No, I don't think so. I think many brands now have reached a decision whether it's uh, right or wrong for them, and they're just trying to execute on that, that decision. Um, but, you know, we I know I'm a massive fan of agencies, always have been, always will be. I think they add a lot of value. But we still see unbelievably poor practice across 
the majority of agencies and also lots of amazing practice um but so, that, that doesn't get shouted about as much anymore no there's so much so bad shit, shit going on in fairness to the ids is that there there is an element in the in the trade price to go aggressive after them like because it's just an easy oh, it's an easy and it's just make. a lot of it's just nonsense and and noise and and you know, wayne's right there is bad practice but the agency still offer offer a ton of value and when you look at the in-housing piece, like that is pretty much impossible in Europe. Not in in some senses, it is in some aspects. But if you're doing local buys and you're doing like particularly around video, or like imagine if you're FMCG with with, with uh, footprint in Poland or you know Eastern Europe or whatever, you need st- you still need to have bodies in the ground to execute that to do the, the PMT. A guy in in a warehouse in in in, in you know the west of London with a brand is not going to be able to pick the phone up to Slad in uh, Slovakia to get that deal done. So the, it's, it's, the, it's the global, local piece that the agencies offer real value around and the execution of media planning as well. And that that doesn't often get talked about. It's just about rebates and how everybody's, you know, milking the system and how brands are getting, you know, cut out. And it's it just, like, if you read the trades every day, you'd swear our industry was in, was in the shitter. But actually, that's not true at all. Oh, definitely not. There's some amazing campaigns that get executed day in, day out. There's some brilliant people who sit within the agencies who do fantastic work. Just sadly, there's a big cloud that gets in the way of the bright sun. Mm. And that is the non-transparent poor practice. And you know, hopefully that will sort of um, disappear. Yeah. But also too much, I think, you know, when these clouds come over, it's all talked, it's all talked about trading and execution. And agencies are then viewed again as these these idiots that just kind of do the media execution. And actually the strategic element and all of the stuff they do outside of that is kind of lost along the way a bit. Particularly when you hear about brands that, are, that only want to work with agencies as execution partners. Yeah. It means that if that's how the agency is looked at, how can they kind of shake that image of themselves? I oh, think- 100%. I mean, when I was at agency side, you know, we'd have quarterly meetings where we're like, how do we get higher up the priority chain on... You know, our client's business, not just in the marketing department, but elsewhere. But the reality is when you are so functional and transactional, it is hard to pivot upwards. It's, it's far easier if you're Accenture, Deloitte and others to pivot downwards because you've got the, the ear of the main decision makers higher up in the business. You've come, you've come at into, the, into that business from a completely different yeah. area, from a different approach, different angle. Yeah, yeah. So, so whether media agencies can... Ladder up, and you'll see rebrands. You know, you see Hearts and Science, they've done exceptionally well. Wavemaker, with what they're trying to do. You know, you're seeing these examples of, um, they even like calling themselves agencies or even consultancies. They, I don't really have a term for them, but they're trying to be different. So they're giving it a go, but whether or not they can, or whether they're so encumbered by legacy and the existing way they make money to pivot and transition into this, I think time will tell. Do we need a new word? Because as consultancies and agencies kind of tend to sort of blur, the lines blur between what's a consultancy and what's an agency, we need a new, there needs to be a new term so that it's not so much stigma attached to each of the, each of the words as the service layer starts to kind of... Evolve. Yeah. Consulgencies. Oh. <laughs> it sounds like you need a cream for that. Consultancy, I've just got consultantitis. So, so um, I, I think probably... There is a need for this. I mean, Wayne probably is closer. Obviously, his business is closer to uh, to the to the clients, and that's sort of an evolution of the space, isn't it? Like we're seeing a white space emerge <clears throat> between the client and and the rest of the ecosystem, and the agencies can do what well, the traditional holding groups can do. Some things, the big 
consultancy groups can do other things and then there's a bunch of stuff that neither can do like so you know the stuff that Wayne's doing which we'll ask in a minute and the stuff that like the likes of um, what's that um, data first business and well a lot of these for, data first business DMP integrations and data like that's a lot of, that's a real key skill set that a lot of the holding groups don't have right let's be honest with you that's a very very like there's a finite amount of people who can who can work in that data data field and then those people don't really exist so those type of specialist um, uh, agency consultancies whatever you want to call them are going to pop up more and more in the next couple of years yep. so that leads us to the next question Wayne what do you do with marketers then and why did you leave the agencies <laughs> <laughs> I think from a so we're a consultancy it's all we do we just uh, set our time either in a project fee or day rate classic consultancy uh, there's three things we do so one is classically named projects so it's basically what do you need and how do we help you with that? The second is audits, more around capability, but it's kind of pre-packaged. You, know, you send us X, Y, Z, we deliver X, Y, Z in return. And then we do something called university, which is training and research um, on a retainer model where clients get access to our thinking on a regular basis. So what do you, 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 you educate them about the digital ecosystem or just the latest trends? Or is, is it a case like my staff have no idea about Snapchat or my staff have no idea about um, this new sort of um, voice search so do you, is it, that kind of high yeah. level stuff or? yeah it varies so for example you know, one of the things we recently produced was what's the role of a CDP or customer data platform oh, oh, no. well exactly but it's a question that people are asking and we yep, can provide absolutely. an unbiased opinion <laughs> because we don't sell one or have any deals in place with one similar to you know everyone likes to give a bad name to blockchain but we're working on a piece for a brand around what might that mean for their how they transact media in the future and we need to work that out because we don't know this is why we go and do the research side of things and then training on a quite a hands-on basis really by going into platforms showing them how things are actually done and you see light bulb moments when that happens and they actually start to they start to understand it and then they can ask hopefully better questions of their service providers do you do, you do a lot of rfp management as well because I, I imagine you're always kind of like working with big brands in Europe to, to figure out who they should work with. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's fall under projects, really. So where you know, a typical engagement for us will be a client, you know, comes to us and says, we want to do more with programmatic. We don't know how. We can't even think we're falling flat on that. So we'll do an audit of everything they do. We have a framework and pillars we do that against. And then the output of that is a bunch of recommendations. And one of those could be, we don't think you're getting the most out of your tech stack. That could be in a variety of ways. And then so you might run an RFP off the back of that. Or maybe you go, actually, do you know what? Your existing tech stack is more than capable. You just need to put X, Y, Z in place to get more out of it. So everything we do is we try to design it around um, the client and what their ambitions and goals are. And we talk a lot about with clients, their vision. So some clients have a vision for programmatic where it's basically smashing out ROI and CPA and sales. Others have a vision where it's omni-channel with connected TV and it's about branded impact. And then we sort of map that against how they're actually executing that today. So we have like vision and execution graphs. And it just helps to put things in perspective around where brands are. Because we know, because we're in this space, there's a lot of noise. So if you were to log on to a variety of publishers or, or trade press tomorrow, you'd get a bunch of different opinions and different stories. So, so you have to make, you, are you like sort of trolling through the noise and trying to give them sort of clarity of what's going on? Like so, yeah. you know, you might have, a vendor saying this on Digiday, you might have a vendor saying this at Ad Exchange, or you might even have somebody in a, a podcast on Exchange Wire yeah. saying the other thing. So, <laughs> Do you see some big news break and go, oh God, my client's going to be emailing about this tomorrow, <laughs> asking what the hell it means? 
No, um, not really. I think, you know, one of the things with being a consultant is oftentimes you're not in the day to day. So we're not actually running campaigns and pressing buttons. And to some people, that would be a disadvantage. To others, I think we provide a higher level view and we connect, we get close to the execution, but don't do it. Um, There's neutrality there as well. That's that's an important factor, isn't it? And we've gotten zero deals with anyone. Um, and we get offered them all the time, but we'll never, we'll never com- say on this podcast we'll never do a deal with anyone. Right. Well, this is recorded reset. and going out public, so <laughs> well, that gives you that gives you an advantage because you know a lot of the big consultancies, including Accenture, have sweetheart deals with Google. And I mean, Accenture have I think it's the second biggest ad ops operation in the world in India, which does most of um, um, Google's back end for their ad manager. So. You know, there's a lot of DFP, well, whatever DFP was, they do a lot of that for publishers. So it's it, they're, they're, those guys are not <laughs> are aligned to to big players. So that yeah. that puts you that neutrality puts you in a good position. Yeah, I think to some clients it's a positive. To others, they might actually be all in on Google already and want a deeper relationship with them. So actually, in some cases, it might be a hindrance. But talk to jellyfish <laughs> and uh, and other good. Another good vendors, yeah. <laughs> Excellent relationships with Google. Who's the other one that has a massive Google uh, relationship? US one. They've just grown really, really. Oh, Mighty Hive. Mighty Hive, yeah. They're great. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they've done really yeah. well. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and I know, I remember we did a Q&A, Lindsay, around what the role of consultancy with, with an agency. Mm. And I said it's additive, still think it's additive. Um, we get some clients who believe their agency should do it, and that's absolutely fine. I'm not going to try and sit there saying why they shouldn't. But when we find clients who see how we work in harmony with an agency or the other service providers, we tend to have really good working relationships and we have really good, like long lasting relationships. I mean, we've only been going two years. Some of our clients we've had pretty much since the beginning. So, um, yeah, so, so I think we're in a good position. Um, and our, you know, our goal is just to keep scaling what we do. I mean, congratulations, it's really impressive. It I is. Mean, I mean, there's not, there's it not really, to be said. really is. You've got, like, starting your own business, like, if, a lot of people kind of jump between com- and and there's nothing wrong with that. But starting your own company is, especially in this space, is almost suicidal. Sometimes it's, you know, you got a lot of sleepless nights. How do I pay my bills? And where's the next next paper coming from? Honestly, that the I've got such a new. I always respected anyone who ran their own business, but such a newfound respect because it's not just the executing on the what you're trying to do for your customer base. It's how you deal with situations personally, how you deal with a non-paying client or slow-paying client mm. or a tricky cash flow or an unexpected bill from the tax man, which you didn't forecast for. And yeah. you're like, oh, that's a bit amateur for me, but you just learn as you go. Yeah. And, you know, I've always said that we are programmatic first and I sort of just try and keep the lights on by the business side going. And, uh, and that seems to be working quite well for us. Um, but... Yeah, it isn't a business for business sakes because I wouldn't do a consultancy in programmatic mm. if I was just wanted to make a stacked ton of money. But you're an advocate of pro- programmatic. I mean, you would, you're I calling yourself it. the programmatic advisory. So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I thought, like, well, it's interesting, uh, you know, so for, coming from someone who runs a blog around uh, uh, <laughs> around programmatic and <laughs> tech, you think there's longevity in it. But do you, do you from, from your perspective, um, from your client's perspective, have they bought in? Are they all in on the programmatic piece? Do they they see the the opportunity? Um, yeah, I mean, we're quite fortunate in that every client we've worked with, bar none, has come to us, and that's because they see the importance of programmatic. So we don't have to convince them on what the benefits are or what it can deliver. We just help them get it done. 
and then there are other clients, you know, you go into a meeting and you just think, God, you just don't fundamentally understand what this can do for your business. So I could probably sit here for a bit and talk to you, but it'll be a really tough engagement afterwards. Um, so we're really fortunate in that our clients are already maybe not all in on programmatic, but they definitely understand what it can do. They just want to make sure they keep evolving, keep getting it done and keep doing the best they can with it. And, and you're ex-Holdco. So what's it what's it like for you now because of being on the consultative side and actually kind of going in and seeing it from the brand's point of view because there is always that barrier between the agency and the brand and you talked about trying to get higher up the chain earlier on now you're actually seeing it from the brand's perspective and hearing sort of their side side of the story and with the agency brand relationship could often feel a bit fraught I mean how are you finding that is that you must have some really interesting insights versus kind of what you believe to be the case when you were actually working for an agency yeah it, yeah I mean I say you know some some of the clients that we work with they've got excellent relationships with their agencies oftentimes those relationships come down to actually the people you have within the agency mm. so if you've got a, a rock star account team and you've got good senior coverage at the agency and you're delivering results and you're being proactive it's excellent I think where the challenges come in is when for whatever reason there's you know there's just a a feeling between the agency and the brand that just isn't working and it could be you know remuneration by the brand not paying them enough and we can recognize that and say we don't think you're paying your agency enough it could be the agency just maybe aren't delivering on what they say they should be doing um a bunch of reasons but it's yeah it's definitely interesting because you know when i was agency side I'd like to think I had some good relationships with the brands I worked with and actually some of them we work with under TPA. Um, but it's, yeah, it's a different conversation. Cause mm. they, they talk to me differently because I'm not an agency person trying to upsell a new dashboard or a new DMP we bought from LATAM or you know, whatever it might have been. It's a, how do we actually get the most out of this? What's your thinking on this? But I, the good thing as well is I've always thought to make this business sustainable, you can't trade off what you knew an agency and find where bodies are buried because that's an absolute that won't last. You've got to play within the ecosystem. I mean, the, I find the best businesses in this in this ecosystem. <coughs> it's funny there was um, JT Batson used to work with uh, Rubicon, and he told me something interesting. You just can't like he's working in the, the TV radio space, and he's got a new company, a sort of like it's more like a um, booking system, but it's more of a sort of workflow tool. But you can't force your ideas and people because this is the ecosystem working you've got to educate them and make their own decisions because I think that was the, sort of the, the slow uptake of programmatic because it was a, it was a sledgehammer where we're going to change the system I've probably taken that's why it's taken 10 years to kind of permeate and become the way to trade media um, but it's 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 interesting <laughs> you say that like you could you could easily go and go, I know this agency did this X, Y and Z in the past I'm going to kind of like you know educate you and then you just burn the bridges to that yeah. relationship with the agency because the person that did that five years ago might have moved on somewhere else and it's yeah. a whole new a whole new sort of management team who probably don't engage in those practices yeah and I, no i really enjoy working with agencies now obviously in a different way and having conversations around you know what do you need from brands can we reach you know a um, a mutually beneficial way where it's win-win because i'm a big believer in women relationships so yeah, it, it, it's. I, I'd like to think when I meet agency people, they're not thinking, oh, do you know what, he's going to find where this rebate is or he, or he knows what the deal's, why the deal's there. He's going to go, okay, how do we get the best out of the client for us and how do we deliver our best work for the client? But they will still think that. 
Because <laughs> yeah. you probably did when any <laughs> auditor or consultant came in. Oh, I, I certainly did. It, it drove me <laughs> insane. I used to hate being audited. Yeah, it it's just, the worst. You go into a meeting with Ubiquity and other good auditors and you, you sit... <laughs> there are other auditors available. <laughs> and you sit there and you're like, oh, what on earth is this? And you like all this like back and forth. And instantly your barrier, your defence yeah. barriers go up and you are trying to... Yeah. yeah it, it just is, it isn't constructive no. to have the back and forth. I think you, where you have the fraught relationships with branded agencies... Brands are trying to find excuses to pitch or get away from them. But I'd like to think that when we engage with brands, it's less that, it's more how do we make this, you know, how do you deliver more of your campaign goals, your business objectives through the agency that you have, as opposed to just, you know, you, you, you've spent too much here, you've spent too much there. Do you think there's a disconnect between procurement, the financial side of the brands and the marketing side of the brands and then the actual agencies that execute? Like, so... It's almost like the procurement is putting pressure on the marketing guys to get the most out of costs with the agency, and that's having a kind of a downward. Instead of having like maybe a grown-up conversation, like what what's this, what's the outcomes of, of us spending this money, right? Maybe the conversation, and it's quite interesting. Is you have that you told me about the enterprise versus like you on the enterprise advertiser. They have different sort of uh, goals and objectives, like the FMCGs, but then there's others who have outcomes. Do you think the conversation is a change with procurement? Because it does feel like, like you know, just talking to former agents people and even talking to auditors that it is bit. In, it's a breakdown in a relationship there. Like it's like as Lindsay says, there's there's no open um, ended conversation. It's very defensive and very much kind of like you know, this is my patch and that's your patch and we're gonna we're not really gonna negotiate here. Yeah, and it is tough. And you're seeing some of that is being consolidated within brands, i.e. the procurement teams are working much closer or have someone focus on marketing only procurement so that they can really understand value it brings because the problem is if you go to a procurement person and you know look at the total business and they've got all this cost in warehousing all this cost in production and then marketing's a big chunk you're trying to get that cost down all the time that's pre- I mean, it's pretty much what procurement do um so the marketing person's going well i don't want to pay for a 20 grand a year programmatic trader i want to pay 60 grand, who's probably three or four times better and could deliver better campaigns, rather than squeezing costs all the time. I say this with clients that I work with who have that mindset. I do, well, I know for a fact, there are many who don't and see media as a cost. I think those who see media as a cost only and try to squeeze it as far as they can will suffer in terms of, from a business perspective. Other brands who see media as an investment that can drive customer and sales growth and do that by working with savvy partners, I think will just win to do much better long term. But, you know, we're at this inflection point where there aren't many case studies to say one way or the other really works because no one's, you know, no, no brands have died from not spending advertising. Um, but there are other brands um, who have done exceptionally well from basically just investing nearly all of their money into advertising. So it's an interest. Yeah, it's how a brand perceives media. And a lot of them talk a good game. But the reality is when it filters down into the, you know, the procurement teams, they need to be given the freedom to not just squeeze costs. But it's hard because you know, these go very high level. These businesses are under pressure in their verticals. If you look at like a FMCG brand or a travel brand or the grocery or the grocer's market, and there's new but entrants but, but that cutting costs, But cutting costs in an area where it potentially could help them grow their businesses is a bit counterproductive yeah I mean I, I find that the, the, the Keatweed and the who's the other gentleman Mark, Mark Pritchard. Pritchard are almost acting like 
CFOs instead of CMOs because mm. all they talk about is cutting costs, cutting costs, cutting costs. And you can look at their 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 growth is starting to sort of plateau in terms of like it's not top line growth is plateauing effectively for them. And I'm wondering if that's connected to, you know, they've had such a relationship, such a dependency on linear TV. And despite what all those barb lunatics would say, linear TV is dying on its arse, right? Nobody's watching it, right? And they may get away with that for a couple of years. And there's definitely a little TV cabal in the UK particularly. It is pretty strong. And it's obvious to me now that that's starting to hit home. And surely that's a a move for Pritchard and we to look at the way they're spending their money and looking where their audience are and then think about programmatic as a as a means to build a branding a branding strategy across because it effectively is branding right mm. you have to build an emotional relationship with a fucking floor cleaner like otherwise it's going to be the millennials and the <laughs> the zillennials will just buy a, a yellow label product out of uh, out of like a subscription basis um, uh, offering from from a from a DTC so it just seems like they're missing an opportunity here instead of like, let's cut costs, let's cut agency. There should be sort of a review going, okay, the world has changed, right? We need to completely change the way we buy media. Yeah. yeah because That's a very long question, by the way. No, but I also think the, I mean, specifically FM, FMCG, their strategy is based on reach and frequency. So three per month per product. And you just think, bloody hell, in this day and age, the targeting you can do, the data you can use, you know, all that kind of stuff. You just think reaching frequency maybe isn't the metrics they should be you know, going towards. But ultimately, they've just got to keep and keep waiting for it to break, for not to work and, and change. Because they've had that model for decades and it's worked. But as you say, as the fragmentation of media and consumer behaviour, reaching frequency is difficult. You can't just plug in a big X-factor spot or and get you know epic reach all the time. It doesn't work for every brand. Before we enter into a giant TV vortex, which I think could go on for hours um, and could continue for a long time. And in fact, we're about to do just that down the pub, aren't we, guys? Um, yes. yes. I'm going to have to say we are signing off for this week. And I want to say thank you so much to Wayne for coming in. Thank you uh, for having thank me. Thank you to Kieran. Thank you. For, I look, look forward to seeing you again soon. Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, and thank you, everyone, for listening to the Mad Tech Podcast. Tune in again next week. Bye-bye.